Okay, real estate shoppers, some important factors to take into account when you're choosing a neighborhood. Price, how long your commute will be, schools, safety. Does most deaf live nearby? That last one was a factor for Adam when he was looking at this one neighborhood in New York. The fact that most deaf allegedly live there. I think at the time he and Erica Badu might have been together. I did run into most deaf at the overpriced bodega on the corner and did the creepy thing of like seeing him through the window, waiting for him outside and accosting him the second he came outside and being like, yo, man, your album was really significant to me. And he looked terrified. You know, he couldn't wait to get out of there with like his $12 mangoes or whatever. This is a Brooklyn neighborhood called Fort Greene. It was the year 2000. The neighborhood was in the early stages of gentrifying. Adam left a cell number with a bunch of real estate brokers. And Fort Greene was very real estate broker intensive. Like, you know, it's not a big neighborhood. There were possibly more brokers than there were blocks. So I left my phone number with a bunch of these brokers. You know, and and I, I was walking up Fulton Street probably an hour after dropping all these phone numbers off when I got a call from one of these brokers. And she was a British lady. Mm -hmm. And she started describing to me an apartment and it had high ceilings and wood floors and lots of natural light. And it sounded great. The only problem was the apartment was not in Fort Greene. It was in Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant. Bed-Stuy. Further from Manhattan, more crime, less gentrified. Princeton's Adam says if you visited both neighborhoods, Fort Greene and Bed-Stuy, and compared what the fake businesses were like, that marijuana dealers worked out of. Like, how plausible are they as businesses? You know, so if, you, if it's the kind of thing where you walk into a, you know, you walk into a bodega and there's like one can of grape soda and a box of baking powder and a shady looking dude behind six inches of like, you know, reinforced bulletproof glass. Yeah. Then your neighborhood is far from gentrified. Whereas Fort Greene at that point had businesses which I went to because I wanted to actually partake of their their legal goods and services and didn't even know that they were weed spots. <laughs> like there was this hat, sh hat shop that I actually bought a hat at mm -hmm. and everybody looked at me like, you know, that's not really a hat shop, right? You know? <laughs> um, so that was the level that Fort Greene was at. Okay, so transitional. Yes, transitional. But less transitional than Bed-Stuy. So he bought records in Bed-Stuy, he had dinner in Bed-Stuy, as he told the real estate broker, did not want to live in Bed-Stuy. And so I said... You know, the apartment sounds cool, but I'm going to pass. Bed-Stuy is a little bit boondoxical for me. So, you know, call me if you get a Fort Greene listing. And very quickly and professionally, she switched gears and started trying to convince me that I should check out the Bed-Stuy apartment. So she said, look, I don't know what you've heard about Bed-Stuy, but it's really very nice. It's very safe. It's changing very fast. A lot of white people are moving there. And I stopped dead in my tracks. Uh, offended and surprised that after about 10 seconds on the phone with me, this woman wanted to have this kind of conspiratorial nudge-nudge, wink-wink conversation as a way of letting me know that Bed-Stuy was safe for people like me. I was mostly offended by it. So I figured that I should end that line of conversation as forcefully as possible mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, shock her back. So I said... I don't like white people that much and I'm not trying to live around too many of them. And there was like silence on the phone. And then she said something along the lines of you, you don't, you don't like white people. And I was like, no, you know, 
I don't hate them or anything, but they walk around like they own the planet. They're really entitled. They don't make particularly good neighbors. So, no, I'm not really trying to live around too many of them. And there was more silence on the phone. And then very slowly and deliberately, she said, sir, I'm very sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I can tell from your voice that you're obviously African-American. <laughs> and I, I cut her off and I was like, no, 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 you got it wrong. I'm, I'm white. And then I, I add something like, no offense. She says, oh, I'm not offended. I get it. I'm black, which because of her British accent hadn't occurred to me. And that's, you know, the next thing I remember about the conversation is basically that the two of us both start laughing. Um, because in the space of about a minute, we had both made so many assumptions and cycled through so many identities. The absurdity of it just, I think, hit us both at once. I assumed that he was black. What well, does he sound black to you in this recording? Yes, he does. And it's just, I realize it's the way he spreads his words out for me. After talking to Adam, I got in touch with the real estate broker, Noreen Sumter. And she remembers this incident the same way he does, with one exception. She says she would not have said, I'm sorry, I did not mean to offend you. Are you African-American? No, I didn't say that. I just directly asked, are you black? Do I sound like, sir, are you sorry? I'm sorry. No, I'm not that. I'm like, oh, really? You don't like white people? Are you black? She's no longer in real estate these days. She's a life coach. But she says the thing that set Adam off, the race baiting, wink, wink, don't worry, a lot of white people are moving there, was not something she said to white clients or to anybody else. She only said it to him because... I assumed that he's black and he was scared to move into a black neighborhood with black people is why I said it to him, right? Like, what is this guy? You're a black guy. What are you... So that's why I said... There's a lot of white people moving there, meaning that you're black. If you're a black man, you should be comfortable in that neighborhood. Like, white people aren't scared to move there. Why can't you? Yeah, like, what's going on? What's over there with you? Why you wouldn't move there? But he wasn't, he wasn't a black man. He was a white guy. I love the efficiency of this story. Like, I like how, how, how we all have people in our lives who it takes years to figure out, like, oh, I totally misjudged this person. And this is the most efficient version of getting somebody wrong and realizing you've gotten it wrong. Like, you couldn't do it in fewer sentences. Look, I'm the queen of the world. <laughs> you know what? My, the people in my building call me queen nor goddess of the universe. So that makes me realize that I can solve anything. Anything can be solved through a conversation. Like, I did assume, and, I, and he assumed, and we both assumed back and forth, but we resolved it in, like, a heartbeat. So, hey... Kudos for us. Sometimes people's answers to questions really surprise me. Well, today on our program, people who are in the same situation where they realize, oh, no, I thought you were one thing and I got it wrong. You are not that person. Except in these other cases, they do not have Queen Nora to help them wrap it up so quickly. And so some of these misunderstandings and misperceptions, they drag on for years with a lot more feelings attached to them. From WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. That one, who's really online too. And now, a radio host discovering things about his listeners that he wishes were not true. 
Obviously, one of the worst things that could ever happen to a person. I think we can all agree on that. I'm saying this as if this is a problem in my life. <laughs> I don't, it's not at all. Anyway, it recently happened to Tony Beam, host of the radio show Christian Worldview Today in South Carolina. Zoe Chase tells the story. Tony's on early mornings, 92.9 FM, 6.60 AM weekdays. His show is for and by the evangelical community. Politics, news, little sports, God, that's his show. All right, welcome back. Hour number two of Christian Worldview today is coming off the shelf, and it's coming straight at you. But just receive it. It's a good thing. Tony and his callers speak the same language. They hate Obamacare and deficit spending. They feel the Christian right gets no respect from the Republican establishment. And when Tony endorses a presidential candidate, enough of his listeners agree with him that candidates seek him out. They come on the air with him. He went with Huckabee in 08, Santorum in 2012. Last spring, Ted Cruz invited Tony and his wife up to D.C. He sat them down in a private Washington apartment and made a pitch. He was going to unite the Tea Party, the Libertarians, the Evangelicals, and win. Tony told me how much he liked him. Not only did he have the principles and convictions that I, I have, but he had a political strategy that I thought would succeed. And when we walked out of that meeting, my, my wife, who is not near as involved in politics or fascinated by as I am, she looked at me and she says, you do what you want. I'm voting for that guy. Not long after, he went on the radio and endorsed Cruz, a lifelong evangelical conservative. Uh, I believe he's the right man for the job. I believe he's the right person that's got insider knowledge, but he's an outsider within his own party because he's willing to call out his party. That impresses me. I'd Tony like to knows see this scene, anti-establishment Christian Republicans in South Carolina. Year after year, he goes to the state political gatherings, the Silver Elephant Dinner, Jeff Duncan's Faith and Freedom Barbecue. He grew up listening to Ronald Reagan on the radio, sitting in the kitchen with his dad. And he was telling me, you know, this guy has got the answer for the future. That is a real, like, American Republican origin story. It is. You and your dad in the kitchen, the the eggs frying, listening to Ronald Reagan on the radio. I can hear it, and I can actually, if I, I can smell the, I mean, he was, most people, it was bacon and eggs. My dad loved liver mush, believe it or not, and he would fry liver mush and make liver mush and egg sandwiches. Tony was especially excited this election year. As the establishment candidates Bush and Scott Walker flamed out, his guy Ted Cruz was on the rise. It looked like he had a real shot at being the nominee. Obviously, there's also this other candidate in the race, Donald Trump. But Tony wasn't worried about Trump. He figured Trump does not fit in with people built on liver mush and the Bible. When Donald Trump got in the race, I said, in three weeks, we'll be done here. Because there's no way that people are going to go chasing after him. Then came the first Republican debate. The one where Megyn Kelly, the Fox News anchor, asked Trump about some stuff he'd said about women. And unlike this week, Trump was there to answer those questions. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie O'Donnell. I'll point out over the 16 seconds of cheering and applause that this turned out to be a very controversial line of questioning. Okay, still going. Thank you. For the record, it was well beyond Rosie O'Donnell. Yes, I'm sure it was. Your Twitter account has several disparaging comments about women's looks. You once told a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice it would be a pretty picture to see her on her knees. 
Does that sound to you like the temperament of a man we should elect as president? I thought it was fair game. I mean, this is Democrats do pound Republicans with a war on women. And now we've got a guy who's kind of the front runner, who's attacking the way a woman looks and attacking other women by name. Are you kidding me? And frankly, what I say, and oftentimes it's fun, it's kidding, we have a good time. What I say is what I say. I come and crack the microphone after that first debate, and I'm like, <laughs> Trump's done. This is it. He's really stepped in it now. And I'm plastered with people calling me, telling me how, how glad they are the way Trump handled himself and that he won that debate. And I was stunned. I, I thought I was doing somebody else's talk show, that that they'd switch frequencies on me and not told me, and that I was actually doing a show in it from a different location. This is crazy. This is not who we are. And that was just the beginning. And I've been waiting for years to hear a politician that talks the way Donald Trump talks. Now, is he going to deliver? I don't know. But I'm, I'm telling you, I'm a trumpeter. I mean, and, and unless he's a liar, um, he's saying all the right things. And, yep. you know, whether his uh, conservative credentials are, are bona fide or not, you know, that, that's not the point. See, anybody can change. Uh, Ronald Reagan did, as we all know. It's Alex, us. Alex, I, I hate to interrupt a great rant, and that was a great rant. That, and as far as rants goes, that one's right up there. But you said it doesn't. I don't know if his conservative uh, credentials are, are, are true or not, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't. No. Calls like these got under Tony's skin real quick. Donald Trump made a statement a couple of weeks ago uh, that he wants to pursue the families of, of the uh, yes, yes. Uh, of, of these jihadists. Yeah, and there was such great outrage. And I can give you uh, examples of two presidents who actually did that. One was the third president of the United States, and the other one was the 39th president of the United States. Okay. And so you think way, that's a good so idea. You think Truman it's a you think bomb. it's a so good idea. You think it's Trump a good idea. Well, now I'm not asking you. No, I didn't you, say it was a good put idea. A, put Tony. a stake in the ground, Gene. Well, if you're going to call, if you're going to call and do this, put a stake in the ground. I'm asking you. I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out. Do you want to ban all Muslims from the United States, and do you want to kill all the family members of anybody who's ever been involved in terrorism? Is that what you want? Is that what you want? I want, I want no, no, no. Tony's a pastor, a doctor of ministry from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And his big problem with Trump is that he's not a good Christian. He doesn't share the values that govern Tony's entire life. For instance, last summer, an interviewer asked Trump if he'd ever asked God for forgiveness of his sins. And Trump was like, why should I? I don't make mistakes. I mean, I drink the wine, I eat the cracker. Some people thought it was funny. Tony did not. Given that, nothing drives him crazier than when his listeners try to defend Trump along biblical lines. Like when that guy Gene calls in to talk about Trump and the second book of Kings. Uh, I, you know, when I sit here and listen to Trump, I agree with a lot of what he's saying. And I want to remind your audience oh of a person in the Bible. Who took down Jezebel? What okay, what Gene is talking about is, in the second book of Kings, this guy Jehu murdered Queen Jezebel because she had pagan idols around the kingdom. Then he threw her body to the dogs. Jehu was like a warrior against a corrupt culture. His name was Jehu. Do you remember that? I I, I remember. And and the you Book think you think Je, you think Donald Trump is Jehu? Yes. yes. You, you do. Yes. Yeah. Remember, Jehu was not a righteous man in God's eyes. 
And God used Jehu to fulfill Elijah's prophecy regarding Jezebel. But and you believe the God guy that... Whoa, 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 Gene. We have such chaos in this country that we would look to a man like Donald Trump, who has no core value system, to lead us back to the place that we need to be as a country. I, I think Trump is going to realize that he may well have to work with the Congress. In a recent poll of South Carolina evangelical voters, Trump is leading, eight points ahead of Ted Cruz. Nationally, he's ahead by more than 15 percent with evangelical voters. Tony is in this very real struggle that I'd say a lot of anti-establishment Republicans are in. There is a part of the Donald Trump thing that appeals to him. Take this moment from the South Carolina Republican debate. And I could say, oh, I'm not angry. I'm very angry because our country is being run horribly. And I will gladly accept the mantle of anger. Our military is a disaster. Our health care is a horror show. Obamacare, we're going to... I got to admit, when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, yeah, go, just, yeah, just hit him again, harder. And then I step back and go, wait a minute. Do I really insane. want him to be president? This is insane because the emotional part of me cannot take control over the thought process that is going to be what carries us in the long run. And that's what scares me about this whole thing. All of this is being, is being wrought out on pure emotion. It's just been building. Obama's getting his way. Nobody's standing against him. He's ruining this country. He doesn't love America. And we don't have people that are pushing back. And it just, it, that mindset turns and people get madder and matter, and I'm afraid we're going to split the party and be in real trouble. Do you have a specific memory of somebody calling in the show and you think, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't going away? No, Barry. You know, I, 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 he called, he he's, he calls my show a lot, and I call him the, um, the Trump interpreter. All right, Barry's on the phone. Hello, Barry. Hey, Tony. I got a couple of questions on the Donald flight. Okay, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Barry is an evangelical Christian. He's very strong in his faith. And when he called and was all about Trump, I was like, oh, my gosh. The pushback that he's doing against the media, various different reporters and so forth, good or bad? It's it's good and bad. Donald Trump is bullying Bully. Is that a good or bad thing? Well, I think it's a good thing for his campaign, and I think it's a a good thing for the people who are tired of the GOP establishment going to Washington and doing squat to make changes. Sounds like you're you're on the Trump train. No, I'm not on the Trump train. What's going on? I didn't say say that he's not doing things that are helpful. I know. And I'm saying, look, what I'm saying is, it's I, I, I don't want to get into all the reasons why I think it's a problem. But anyway, Barry, thanks. We don't have time. We got to take a break. We come back. We got a couple of guests in the studios. We want notice to how much to Tony we'll and Barry agree on. The media is unfair to their candidates. The Republican establishment dismisses them. But still, so you've gotten to know Barry. Well, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recognize him if he walked in the room. But I've talked to him enough on the air. Where over the years, I mean, he's been calling this show for years, and I felt like I knew him pretty well, but he's he's gone in a direction that I would have been, I would have said wouldn't have happened. I thought we agreed that the person that we wanted to lead us would agree with our principles and have that at their core. So you're willing to lay all that aside? Oh, I think he has those principles, whether he's a Christian or not. 
I just raise the white flag and go, line two, because I don't know what to do about that. So after months of squabbling with Barry and the other callers over Trump, Tony remembers vividly the moment he was sure the ongoing argument with his listeners would finally end. It was the moment he was sure Trump had lost the evangelical vote. It was when Trump said we needed to ban all Muslims from coming to America. My first thought was, no, that no, somebody's got that messed up. So then I find um, a video where he actually makes that statement. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. And I was horrified. You want to know my initial reaction? I was horrified. I'm thinking to myself, we, this is so opposed to everything that are my core values. Were you nervous to come in and do the show after that happened? Because you knew... No, because I'm an idiot. Because I came in and thought, man, you know, this may help Trump overall, but Christians, they're going to be appalled by this. Barry's on the line. Go ahead, Barry. He didn't say the religious expression. He said Muslims. It's a religion. Their ideology is uh, absolutely a conquering ideology. He's saying Muslims have a conquering ideology. Find out what's going on. Okay. Well, why don't we ban Christians? Why don't we, you know, Christians have uh, in their background an ideological conquering mentality. I mean, you look at that Old Testament, man, you got, you got, uh, you got the Jews that were taking over the entire countries. Christianity rose out of Judaism in the Christian. Now I'm talking, I'm talking now, Barry. See, this is the way this works. We don't talk at the same time. So, you know, we need to be, we, we, you, you, what I'm trying to get you to see is that if once we start down a road where we tell people that because of their religious expression, we're going to deny them entry into the country, we're setting a precedent. Well, I, I disagree because that's not what he's saying. It's their ideology. It's the connection with, with terrorism is what he's talking about. But all Muslims are not terrorists. All Muslims are not terrorists. All Christians don't shoot abortion doctors and bomb abortion clinics. I don't want to get lumped in and with them because I'm a Christian any more than there are Muslims that don't want to be lumped into the idea of terrorism because they're a radical Islamic extremist who are trying to kill people. Barry, thanks for the call. We're going to, Robbie, I'm going to have to hold you. We've got to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Robbie. Here we go with the delays. So I went to Barry in person to understand, yes, why he loves Trump so much, but really how he'd strayed so far from Tony. Is it you? How are you? Hi, Barry. It's my son, David. I'm Zoe. It's just, I'm thrilled to meet you. You're like a celebrity to me. Oh, really? I don't understand. How's that? I don't get it. Barry Chisholm in the flesh. He works 20 minutes away from Tony's radio studio. He runs a small business managing employee benefits. This means he is up close and personal with Obamacare, which he is not a fan of. Barry is what you might have pictured, hyper older white guy in a baseball cap. He is indeed an evangelical Christian from Boston. It takes him just a few seconds to wind himself up. Is that part of why you would move down here? Like, it seems like a more friendly environment to evangelicals than Boston is. 
No, actually not. I miss being up in Boston because the difference up there is if you're a Christian, you stand out like crazy. If you're a Christian down here, it's a cultural thing. And I like being around people that have strong opinions because it's fun because you know what? I know what I believe. And and what I believe is not what I made up. It's it's this guy, Jesus Christ, who started it. So I'm globbing onto what he taught. So it's fun. I miss being up around people who don't, who don't, uh, know about Christ and what he taught. So no, I miss that. That's probably the most fun part is I like to engage people and I like to turn people on. Hey, go check it out. If you don't believe me, you know, go find out for yourself. That's the journey I had to take. And that's, a, and so no, I would never move down here just because. And also it sounds like you kind of like living a, a little bit as a contrarian. Is that fair to say? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's real kind of accurate. You know, that's, yeah, it is kind of accurate, I guess. I mean, yeah. Barry is the guy who loves to stir the pot. Barry is a mischief maker. He is a scamp, kind of like Donald Trump. Tony and Barry, though, they started out this election season in the very same place. Well, I mean, I supported the Huck, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum before that. Uh, you know, and then held my nose and voted for Mitt Romney. And, and I way back supported Reagan. Uh, did it, so when this came around and you had, you know, not the seven dwarfs, the 14 dwarfs out there, I, I mean, I mean, I just waited to see, you know, the dust settle. One thing about Donald Trump, I said it will be entertaining if he gets in. It'll be fun to watch because he's not a politician. I didn't realize how much fun it would be, but it, 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 it's gone way beyond my expectation. It's been the most enjoyable election I've ever seen, watching every, all these people's heads implode. It's been, it's been a fun time. It's been fun to watch all the establishments you know, come unhinged because they, they can't control it. It's fun to watch the liberal media um, you know, come out with the bigots, the names, and he's this, he's racist, and all that. I just never knew someone could take the heat and just punch back. So it's like, yeah, this this is fun. This is different. As for Ted Cruz, Barry says, forget it. He'd be killed in the mainstream media. He saw it with other strong evangelical candidates. They will just make fun of him. But Donald Trump, he'll make fun of the mainstream media. That is such a joy to Barry. By the time the first debate happened, you know, Megyn Kelly, the Rosie O'Donnell question, Barry and Tony had completely opposite experiences. Tony's like, are you kidding me about Trump? But that's what Barry says about Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly had to spend a lot of time to dig up that little piece. And he made a cavalier joke. Are you kidding me? She was digging for stuff. We, we've got so politically correct. Just like what Donald Trump said about Kali Fiorina's face. Look at that face. Look at Donald Trump. That, 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 that Look at if you're going to be a woman, you're going to get in the ra- thing, then go for it. Don't be, don't be. He He's an equal opportunity basher. He'll bash guys as well as women. Stop with the baby stuff. And the Megyn Kelly thing, she it, it became more about her than, you know, this is a presidential debate. I, Didn't he say... Blood coming out of her wherever. Oh, that. Oh, that too. Yeah. And that, oh, that was afterwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that was stupidity. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You know, is all this stuff presidential? I don't know. But you know what? This guy's not a politician. Megyn Kelly, the wall, the ban on Muslims, all this stuff that Tony was sure would drive everyone away. Barry loves those things. Barry loves the idea, not necessarily the practice, but the fact of the statement of banning all Muslims. All he's bringing up is, do we have a problem? And if we do, can we talk about it? Or are we going to just, everybody's a bigot now? 
I mean, that's all. So don't try. We just want it needs to be addressed. What I found out upon meeting Barry is one of the things he loves most about Donald Trump is arguing about Donald Trump. The conversation that is freaking Tony out so much about the state of the country, that conversation itself is the thing that Barry is relishing. And Barry's diabolical about it. Barry has eight sons, all Trump fans, he says, and he's deployed his son David in his pro-Trump battles against Tony. What'll happen is my dad will get on there, Tony will get all flustered and upset, and every once in a while, he'll, if he's having a bad day, I'll cut him off short. So then I call right in and just kind of continue the conversation because it's a whole not- he thinks it's a whole nother caller or, you know, so it, it is. But the whole, you know, so he can't avoid the uh, Trump mindset uh, sometimes. Why do you do that to him? Um, it's just the challenge of it because they have the authority to just kick people off and make people feel stupid when they call in. You know, we, a lot of people will be like, well, I don't really like Trump. Uh, I'm not a Trump supporter, but. You know, he's pretty good on this issue, and Tony will just oh, jump all over that. I thought the Trump supporters I'd meet in South Carolina would be angry. But a lot of them are like Barry. Angry, but having such a great time. The people I met, they're more happy than angry. Like at this biker rally for Trump. Thanks to everybody coming out for this. Um, we're going to line our bikes up facing Market Commons. So when he comes through, we're going to be about an eighth while wide and you'll be able to see us, see what's going on. Uh, if you're a felon or anything, leave your guns behind. You never know. They might have secret service there. If you got a permit, by all means, carry it. Uh, that's all I got. Thanks to everybody coming out. The rally was held at a biker bar in Myrtle Beach called Suck Bang Blow. It was explained to me that those are the mechanics of a combustion engine. I asked this guy Kool-Aid about Trump. Leather vest and tattoos. So why do you like Trump so much? Well, because, uh, I mean, he's just down to earth. I know he's kind of loud and obnoxious, but so are all of us bikers. Kool-Aid's never voted in his life. Today he's throwing a Trump rally to welcome him to town. And he has voter registration cards stacked up at the bar. Steve, he'd never voted before either. Never, ever did I give two craps who ran because I figured we were going to get screwed anyway. But there's a difference now. When did you register? Three days ago. For Trump? Absolutely. Just figured I got to do it because you know what? Every little bit helps. My one vote might not be much, but you know what? It might be the one that makes it rock. I went registered last week so I can vote me some Trump. (laughs) Vote you some Trump? Heck yeah. We need somebody. It's going to hell in a handbasket. I knew these guys, first-time voters, wouldn't care that they might split the Republican Party. They never felt at home there. But Barry, Tony's radio nemesis slash radio frenemy, is different. So I asked him, if you go for Trump, are you going to split the party? Who cares? (laughs) I don't care. The Republican Party needed to be split a long time ago. They trolled the evangelicals. They pandered to the conservatives. When they get in there, they do what their lobbyists tell them to do. So if the Republican Party splits, so what? All I care about America at the end of the day. Tony, though, really cares. He does not want to lose the election. And he wonders, what does it mean about his listeners if they follow this Pied Piper? I think that's what's led to my current level of frustration. And I admit to you that it's greater than in the past. And I probably, quite frankly, need to dial it back a little bit. Um, because I don't need to be consumed by this 
And for the last couple of weeks, I've I've probably been, I mean, this has been very heavy on my mind. And then he has this other worry, this other way of thinking about it. This worry is so personal, at first he didn't want to talk about it. I want to tell you something off the record. But after we talked a little, he agreed to go back on Mike. I mean, there have been times when I've thought about just giving up the radio show because I don't want to be one who fosters the unreasonable level of anger that's out there. I think that by giving airtime to some of this stuff... Well, I have callers who call in that are very angry now, (laughs) and they express things that... And and I push back, but I just wonder how many people are hearing that and going, he's right, and Dr. Beam needs to get with the program, you know. Um, And so I debate sometimes to myself, am I not doing anything except giving a platform? Look, Jesus Christ, when he walked this earth, condemned the zealots. He condemned the establishment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because they were hypocrites. But he also condemned those who wanted to march against Rome in a violent way. That was not the path that Jesus talked about. Jesus was was the Prince of Peace. He was a reconciler. Uh, I know that's what he's done in my life. And I want to be that to represent him in the world. I don't want to be somebody that pours gas on a fire. I want to be a reconciler who brings peace in a situation where anger is, seems to be the prevailing thought process. And I don't know how best to do that. But if I can't do it with a microphone, I'd just rather turn it off. It's not Trump that bothers me. What bothers me is that Trump is popular. The story from Zoe Chase producers of our show. She'll be doing campaign coverage for us all this year. Coming up, he's taking a guy who does exist for one who does not exist. That's in a minute. Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. This is American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, I Thought I Knew You. Stories of people misperceiving other people. Sometimes it slowly dawns on them that they have it wrong. Sometimes it comes out quickly. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, My Little Bruce Dupe. Well, so far in our program, we have focused on people who are misperceived, but they don't want to be misperceived. They're not doing things to create misperceptions. But of course, sometimes people deliberately mislead other people about who they are. Comedian Jay Larson has this example. Your cell phone rings. You don't recognize the number. What do you do? Ignore it. Ignore it. Send it to voicemail. Yeah, not this guy. I answer it. Yeah, exactly. Opportunity, potential. Who knows? Who knows what it is? The other day I was driving down the 405, traffic. Phone rings, 917, New York. I'm like, oh, I don't know the number. I hit talk. I go, hello. Guy on the other line goes, hey, Bruce, what's going on? My name's Jay, not Bruce. So clearly I go, nothing much, man. What's going on with you? And he goes, I'll tell you what's going on. I just got an email about the budget. It's supposed to be 15000 Now it's 10000 I'd like to know what the hell's going on. And I grabbed the steering wheel. I was like, all right, focus. Focus right now. 
Your name is Bruce. There's a budget. It's 15000 Now it's ten. No one's happy about it. Just get, go with this. Go with this. I didn't know much. I only knew what he told me, so I just said it back, and I go, 10000 It's supposed to be 15000 He goes, yeah, well, I just got an email, and now it's ten. And I go, hey, I don't know what to tell you, man. I'm on the road right now. I haven't even seen the email. And he goes, are you behind this? Did you send it out? Like, giving Bruce some attitude, you know what I mean? And I'm like, no way I am taking that. There's no way. And I go, listen, bro, the budget was 15000 We had a couple extra expenditures. It went up to sixteen two. I reworked it, got it down to fourteen seven. We had 300 to play with. I called it fifteen. I sent it out. He goes, yeah, well, now it's ten. And I was like, oh, my God, that worked. Stay focused. Stay focused. I'm not even enjoying it. You know what I mean? I can't even laugh. I have to stay. I'm like literally in it. I was just in it. He goes, did Larry okay this? Now he's throwing Larry at me. Yeah. So I go, listen, I took it to Larry. He said it looked fine, but I knew it was my ass on the line. So I ran it by Jennifer just in case. She said it looked good. I sent it out. He goes, yeah, well, now it's 10. And I was like, this guy has no idea what's going on over there. He hasn't talked to Larry. He hasn't talked to Jennifer. I just made her up. Clearly, he has not spoken to Bruce. He goes, listen, man, what are we going to do about this? I go, bro, I'm on the road right now. I haven't even seen the email. Why don't you call Larry, check in with him, see what's going on, give me a call back. Literally, like, throwing the fishing line out, being like, please say yes, because that phone call return is going to be amazing. (laughs) And he goes, he goes, listen, why don't we wait till you get home, you check the email, you call Larry, you call me back. I go, nah, nah, bro. Larry knows way more about this than I do. Give him a call, call me back. He goes, okay, hangs up the phone. (laughs) To which I explode with euphoria. Because there's a small business in New York somewhere that's crumbling to the ground. Over $5,000. No one can find Bruce. No one's talked to Larry. And they don't know who the hell Jennifer is. Excitement. Not even done. I get home. I'm so excited. I call some friends, tell them what happened. I think to myself, you know what? I'm going to save that guy's number. Give him a call in a couple days. Check in. Touch base. See where we're at. I save the number on my phone under random guy. He's a random guy. I don't think about it. A couple days pass. No big deal. Laying on the couch watching the game. Phone rings. Dining room table. Watching the game. Get up. Pick up the phone. Look down. Random guy. And I think to myself, random guy? I don't know any random guy. Who the hell's random guy? And then I was like, oh, random guy. <laughs> now I'm freaked out. You know what I mean? I'm in my house. They know where I'm at. People, people's lives have been affected. But this is who I am. You know what I mean? I started this thing. I'm going to see it through to the end. That's how I saw this. Put in my earbuds. Just to get a little distance. Just get some distance. You know what I mean? I hit talk. I go, hello. Same guy goes, hey, Larry, what's going on? Now he's calling me Larry. He knows what's up, but I'm not going to cave. You know what I mean? And I go, nothing much, man. What's going on with you? And he goes, listen, I got us on conference call with Janelle and Marie. (laughs) Like I'm backing down from Janelle and Marie. 
So I go, uh, hey, ladies. Welcome to the call. As if to say, welcome to the show. Here we go. How long are we going to lie for? How long do you want me to lie? Because I am going to go all the way. Marie, she takes the lead. She goes, hey, Larry, what time is it where you are? And I look at the clock, and it's 5.30. And they're a New York company, so I go, 8.30. It's 8.30, they're like sprinkling more lies, and like, I can fool them, I can fool them. She goes, really, what's the weather like? And I go, weather's nice, weather is nice. She goes, really, this doesn't sound like Larry. And I go, oh, yeah, who's it sound like? And the guy who called both times, he chirps in. He's like, sounds like Bruce! Sounds like Bruce! Like he's going to blow this case wide open, you know? <laughs> and I go, I go, guys, this isn't Larry and this, and this isn't Bruce. And she goes, who is this? And I was like, I'm just some dude who had nothing better to do than to mess with you guys. Marie did not like that. She got pissed. She started yelling at me. She's like, we're a small business trying. I'm like, oh, I know. She's like, you think this is a joke? And I was like, oh, a little bit. She goes, let me ask you something. I go, no, you let me ask you something. And she goes, what? And I go, where we at with the budget? Jay Larson, recorded at the Laugh Factory in Los Angeles. Amazing, right? His website, jlarsoncomedy.com. Act three, a light from the other side. I think a lot of kids would be really shocked. I think the main word is shocked at how well their teachers understand them. You know, when teachers are good. Good teachers can talk to you forever about this kid or that kid in their class, their good qualities, their bad qualities. And when you're a student and there's a teacher you respect and the teacher thinks badly of you, that is just like a horrible feeling that you may or may not get to correct. Eve Abrams tells this story. I taught elementary school for 10 years in New York City at this place called the Neighborhood School. It was one of those schools where students call teachers by their first names and where teachers really get to know their students well, their families, their strengths, their dramas. But sometimes one kid stands out. This is a story about one of those kids and his friend and his teacher. Sophia is the teacher and also a friend of mine. Lily was our student years ago. She's 16 now. And Lily's classmate Robert was our student too. But he's dead. So I'll let Lily tell you about him. I really had a hard time telling people who had died for a while because I didn't want to say friend and I didn't want to say best friend because that makes it seem like my best friend, like, you know what I mean? And anyone can say that they were his best friend. I mean, he lived so close to me, so we'd basically, we'd go like, you know, we'd hang out 24-7. Um, we talked about everything. In our school, everyone was pretty quiet and good, and like, I don't know, to me, he just seemed like he was just different, and he was fun, and everyone else was boring. Teachers never liked him. Um, he's probably a little bit rude, like, he didn't do his homework, that was like a big thing because in the neighborhood school, everyone was like, well, got to do your homework, got to do your homework or, you know, you're not going to go out for recess and all this stuff and whatever. He'd be like never going out for recess because he never did his homework. Robert didn't defer to adults and other kids were drawn to that. But he was also sort of hapless. He was the kind of kid who, when he cut school, got caught. He got kicked out of middle school, which was always like really weird to me because there was so many kids that were so much worse. I mean, I, I like there was kids that came in that school like once a week at 10 o'clock and like 
grabbed a girl and left. I had a crush on him, like, the second I saw him. Fifth grade was, like, the big year that I really had a big crush on him. It was just like, oh, my God, I love you. He one time left me flowers at my door. It was my birthday, and knocked on the door and ran away. <laughs> and so I opened the door, and there was flowers, and I was like, my, like, I was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, he loves me, like, flowers, da, da, da. And so I picked it up, and there was a note, and um, it said, from Robert to Lily, happy birthday, P.S., don't get happy. <laughs> Like, as in, like, whatever, don't get happy, don't think I like you because I'm doing this. Don't get happy. I was like, but I am happy because you left me flowers. I realized it's actually because I liked him so much as a friend, and I never really had somebody that was a boy that I liked so much as a friend. Um... So I figured, you know, I must be in love with him or I must, like, have the big... But, you know, it's also, like, I just actually always really liked him um, as a person. That's how Lily saw Robert. Sophia saw him differently. After he was in my class, Robert moved on to Sophia's class right next door. And a lot of times I'd see and hear them out in the hall together. Mostly I'd hear Sophia. She would lecture Robert about homework and effort and attitude, and her voice got really loud and annoyed. While Sophia lectured, Robert just stood there. Rolling his eye. I mean, it was more a physical manifestation, just kind of listening to me, but not really listening, kind of looking off in the distance. Um, head, head was at a tilt, you know, arms crossed, kind of like waiting for the, the, you know, the episode to end. Sophia had a harder time with Robert than I did. He was older by the time she taught him, but his reading wasn't much better and he still struggled with his schoolwork. He'd also gotten really good at deflecting all of the things that teachers would try, you know, ordering, cajoling, tricking. Sophia would see Robert around the neighborhood after school, hanging out with older boys, doing nothing much, and it frustrated her to no end that this smart, charming kid seemed headed for a lifetime of dead-end jobs and disappointments. At one point, when I was kind of getting near my, the end of my rope, I... Um, you know, talk to his family about making him stay after school in the classroom just so he can get his homework done. And uh, I think we did it for like a week or two. And, you know, I don't think it was a very successful. It wasn't a, a habit he could um, replicate at home. Incidents between Sophia and Robert piled up, and the year ended badly between them. Someone wrote an obscenity about Sophia on the school wall, up high, where only a tall kid could write. And our principal was convinced it was Robert. He ended up being banned from the big end-of-the-year party. When Robert didn't show up at graduation, other kids at the school, including Lily, blamed Sophia, even though Sophia had nothing to do with it. Not going had been Robert's decision. Mostly, Sophia felt she'd done the best that she could with Robert. But she wasn't sure. She felt bad when she thought about him. Bad for not reaching him. Bad for having been hard on him. And for the next few years, she dreaded seeing Robert around the neighborhood, especially with other kids she knew, like Lily. And then one day, Sophia heard Robert was dead, stabbed to death for reasons no one knows even today. 
He had just turned 16 two weeks before. After Robert uh, was killed, I had this nightmare. I dreamt that, I don't know, two or three of the girls in that class were really upset with me. And they were, they were talking about the time when I had asked Robert to stay after school and work on his homework. One of the girls had accused me of, um, of preventing him from joining a basketball league. And um, she said that because I didn't let him do that, because I made him stay after school to work on his homework, he didn't get a chance to make better friends and, and do something that was better for him and more productive. And um, I really felt like, you know, maybe they have something there. If nothing else had happened, Robert would have stayed like that in Sophia's head for years. A kid she always had regrets about, always wished she'd done a better job with. But about six weeks after Robert died, Lily came back to her old elementary school and showed up in Sophia's classroom out of the blue. And she did something none of our students had ever done. I was surprised to see her, of all people, in my room, in my class, visiting me. And... Um, then she said, well, I wanted to give you this, and she handed me a note that she'd written, and then she left. And then when I read the note, I couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe I had to read the letter over again. I keep it in my wallet. I wanted to frame it, but sometimes I feel like I just need to read that letter again, just to remind me. Would you mind getting it out? Sure, I'll read it. Um, Dear Sophia, this is a letter of appreciation to you from me and Rob. Thank you very much for coming to Rob's wake. I know it would have meant so much to him to see how many people showed up. In the past three years, well, four years, since me and Rob left the neighborhood school, we have been best friends together every day. I just wanted to let you know how much Rob appreciated what you did for him as a teacher. Whenever we would talk about the past... He said that he understood everything you did for him and that he was grateful for it. He showed me that people care for you. That's why sometimes they are harsh. For that reason, I thank you for teaching it to him. Rob always liked when people showed him they cared. He cared for you very much. Hope to see you soon. Lily Torres Lily wrote the note to Sophia on an impulse, while she was grieving. She wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do, or if it was weird, or even if Robert would approve. But before she could talk herself out of it, she sat down at her kitchen counter and wrote it on a pink post-it. I think the thing is, like, I really wanted people to know that he was a really great person. I mean, you know, teachers were just always not liking him, and I just maybe thought, yeah... If maybe even if one teacher that he had knew that he liked them or that, you know, not to change his reputation with, like, you know, every teacher that he ever had, but I was just trying to take a little bit of bad off of his name because I don't think he really deserved any bad at all. He was so mature about that whole thing about her, and I wasn't at all. And I, I wanted, I thought maybe by showing her that, with that, she would know that he actually turned out pretty well. He said, um, I'm not mad because I think that she was trying to do the best thing that she could for me, because we were talking about Sophia. 
you know, I was just kind of like, you know, she didn't know how to handle you. And he was like, he's like, what are you talking about? She didn't know how to handle me. You know, I was bad. And like, she was just trying to like help me. Like, you know, and he said that he was thankful that she took the time out to even care about him, even if it was yelling or whatever it was. It showed, she, he said that, you know, it showed him that she cared. Sophia never wrote back to Lily. She'd wanted to find the perfect way to thank her, but she couldn't decide what to say. And then she figured too much time had passed. Though Lily doesn't see it that way. It's fine that, you know, if she doesn't write me back or if she does, I don't think it's ever too late. Um, you just never know what people need to know. Until I spoke to her, Lily had no idea how much her note had meant to Sophia. That Sophia kept the note in her wallet. That it had lifted away years of guilt. For Lily, the note was about saving Robert, the part of him that was left in the world. She hadn't realized that it would also rescue Sophia. Abrams. That's actually a story that we first broadcast eight years ago. Sophia is still a teacher at the same school. Lily, the 16-year-old, now has a master's in music business and works at Electric Lady Studios. Now I crack a simple Okay, so our theme today is I Thought I Knew You, and Act 4 of our show today is titled I Thought I Knew You Too. There's this um, podcast about U2, the band U2, that's done by Adam Scott from Parks and Rec and Scott Aukerman, who you may know from Comedy Bang Bang. And, you know, they're really into U2, as you would expect for people who are making a podcast about U2. So they sit and they talk about the band and they break down their albums, that kind of thing. And they did uh, this thing not long ago where into this den of intense U2 fandom – they brought somebody who knows nothing about you two, a comedian named Todd Glass, who also has his own podcast, no relation to me, by the way. And what happens is just this very fun to listen to matter-antimatter collision. Todd Glass explains that he doesn't know really much about music, about any band. And let's just pick it up from there. You two, I know. Here's when it comes into the part I don't know. He, The lead singer gets uh, – you two. What is his name? We're not going to tell you. He we, gets teased we, a lot for taking himself too seriously. Like he's in the world hunger. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not going to. We're not going to tell you okay. anything. I, I want to hear everything you know about you. Well, two. I know that. Oh, there's so much right on the. There's a song about about a. Isn't there a song that he did for like some big like event, like to raise money for some like it was like really? I'm sure there's a lot of songs, but this was written for one thing particular. Mm. No, no, I don't know. I don't. I'm know just either. wondering what you know. God damn it! Can't you give me his first name? I'm picturing him with his big glasses, mm -hmm. and he has his hair sort of thinning up top. What What else about what you else two? do you know about you two? 
it, life experiences, anything. I just Any know contact you've songs, made. big that, glasses. I know. I don't. I can't. I, if you told me a song, I would genuinely like as it's coming out of your mouth. One of those things. I'd be like, oh yeah. Um, so that's what you know. You you could not even tell us one name of one song. No. But uh, I could. But if you played, I, if you played, can songs, I play something? I would know if you play something. But seriously, okay. and don't tell me if it's going to be it or not. Don't don't just play his song. I'll tell you if it's his song or not in a heartbeat. I bet. Okay, so I'll I'll play a song, and, and I'll know if it's his song or not in a heartbeat. I would imagine. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, so I'm going to play a song. You tell me if this is a U2 song. So okay, and Here I'm going to just tell you. You know, I think I could know pretty quick. No. <laughs> Okay. It's not. It doesn't have enough uh, soul. Okay. Would I be right to say that? It, you it, are. That was Jerry Rafferty, <laughs> Baker Street. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, the next one is going to be him, probably. All right. Here we go. Ready? No. No. <laughs> You're right. This is Steely Dan, <laughs> 19. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, one of these is going to be you too. Okay. All right. You ready? Uh huh. I'm going to say no. You are right. That is Weezer. <laughs> Buddy Holly. This is one of the greatest moments of my life. Just listening to this. All right. Ready? Okay. All right. Here we go. At this point, it's got to be it. Yes. No. Wait. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Don't let me answer. This is older, but yes. It's an older work of his, but yes. Incorrect. This is Peter Gabriel Sledgehammer. Ah, <laughs> I knew it wasn't it, but here's what happened. My instincts were that it wasn't it, but I thought, well, how many will he play before it's it? So I said, don't trust your instincts. Uh, <laughs> can I just play you a song? Or? Well, yeah, finally, at this point, I think it would be better for All me. Right, I'm trying to think of what song you would know. Um, I'm going to look away. You decide. All right. Okay. I, okay. Here's. All right. This is. This, okay, I think this is the song that you would know. Hold on. No, this isn't him. No. This is him. No, it isn't. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is him. Uh, oh. This is definitely well, him. <laughs> This isn't him? Oh, All right, look. God. All right. Scott. Yes. No bullshit. Play the song, look me in the eye, and play a real song and stop All right. Here. All right. I gotta I'll be able to it. tell. I got to find out. Just play the song. Seriously. Okay. Here we uh, go. The, uh, Scott, look me in the eye. I am looking you in the eye. Okay. Yes. Okay. Let me just hear a YouTube of a U2 song. All right. Here, here we, we go. This is u I'll recognize it. This is probably U2's most famous song, I would say, out of all. Yeah, don't play something new. Play something. <laughs> I knew this was them. Okay. <laughs> now really play their song. Okay. Here, here, here's the real. Now I really do want to hear it. Oh, it's connecting. All right. Cruise her around the town, show everybody what I found. Rock and roll with all my friends, hoping the music never ends. All right, here's a new song. Is this you two? Yes, I know this song. 
Jesus Christ, you know how exhausted I am? <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Oh, that was I'm fun. literally out of breath. <laughs> I like, could have done that forever, though. Just listen to it. Scott, Scott Alkerman, and Todd Glass from the podcast You Talking You Two to Me. Full episodes at Earwolf.com. Our program was produced today by Jonathan Manhevar and myself as Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Neil Drumming, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffrey Walt, Nikki Meek, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, Lily Sullivan, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer is Brian Reed. Our editor is Joe Lovell. Julie Snyders, our editorial consultant. Our technical director is Matt Tierney. Research help from Christopher Sotala. Production help from Lyra Smith. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon is our production manager. Elise Bergerson is our business operations manager. Elna Baker, scout stories for the show. Kimberly Henderson is our office coordinator. Music help today from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Denise Beam, Adam Beam, Josh Kimbrell, Gary Miller, Will Folks, Robert Sloan, Gwendolyn Boyce, Fitz Gaines, and Greta Cohn at Earwolf. Adam Mansbach, who told the story about the real estate agent at the beginning of the program, is the author of several books, including Go the F*** to Sleep, our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia, who was helping me move and swiped one of my old photo albums. Kept it months. Finally, just this week, he gave it back to me and apologized. Yo, man, your album was really significant to me. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. This American Life.